What sort of gifts are you accustomed to giving your loved ones? What sort of gifts are you comfortable receiving? I mean, do you prefer giving and receiving gifts that are lavish and extravagant? Or do you prefer presents that are more practical and modest? I remember one year, my dad declared that the new dishwasher in our house was a birthday gift for my mother. Sounds kind of mean, maybe a little cheap. But I need to remind myself, my dad is a guy who would spurn a $200 present for a pair of work gloves that fit just right. That being said, I think that many of us are culturally measured in our gift-giving and gift-receiving, maybe genetically measured in our gift-giving and gift-receiving. We tend to be economical and practical in our presence. We tend to be uncomfortable with the largesse of others. I mean, how would you feel if your neighbor gave you a case of wine for Christmas. And if you don't drink, maybe think of a a case of maple syrup. I think most of us would be ecstatic for a moment. And then all of a sudden this discomfort would settle in on us. It's too much. It's too expensive, we would tell them. All the while there would be a sort of growing suspicion in our minds What are they trying to get from us? Or imagine, imagine if someone left a painting to our congregation, to St. Andrew's, and not just any painting, but a work of art from the group of seven. Would we, at St. Andrew's, enjoy this gift? Would we proudly display it and let it beautify our sanctuary? I think we would spend lots of time actually worrying about this gift. And in the end, just my suspicion, I think it would be deemed too extravagant and too valuable to ever be displayed here in the church rather than being welcomed and enjoyed as it was intended. The painting would be packaged up, crated, and sold. Today's Bible lesson tells a story about the giving and receiving of a lavish offering. Jesus, as Keith reminded us, is in Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem. It was a town he'd often stay over at during his visits to the city. Jesus is reclining at a table, maybe enjoying a conversation after dinner, when all of a sudden a woman enters the room opens an expensive-looking bottle and pours perfume over Jesus' head. Imagine with me the scene, oil running down his face and his hair and the scent of 10,000 roses permeating the room. Now, just to be clear, it wasn't unusual for guests to be anointed when visiting a home. It was an act of honor and hospitality that Jesus himself refers to in Luke chapter 7, verse 46. 
What was strange or unusual about this case was the incredible value of the oil, the perfume that was poured on Jesus' head. Now, I did a little research. I talked to Mr. Google, and one of the most expensive perfumes I could find was a scent made by Hermes called 24 Faubourg. It goes for $1,500 U.S. per ounce. An ounce will cost you 2000 Canadian. Pretty pricey, right? Well, we are told that the perfume poured on Jesus was made of nard, and the best nard came from far away India, which made it even more expensive than that sent from Hermes. A quick ballpark estimate from the disciples put it at its value at a year's wages for a laborer, which is around $30,000 in contemporary Canada terms. We are told that the disciples weren't impressed by this lady's offering. Now, the disciples' reaction might have been different if she made a tax-deductible donation to Jesus and the Disciples' Ministry Incorporated. But she took that $30,000 and poured it on Jesus' head. It is astonishing for someone, this unnamed woman, to make such an extravagant offering. But equally amazing, and I think we sometimes overlook this, is the fact that Jesus accepts this offering. We are not told that Jesus argued with the woman or held out his hands, um, get get that woman away from me. No, we are told that he welcomed her gift, her offering. He says to his arguing disciples, Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for me. They were thinking, What a waste! And Jesus declares, How beautiful! In biblical times, uh, anointing wasn't just an act of hospitality. It was used to set people apart. Kings, priests, and prophets were all anointed. The promised one that the people were expecting was called the Messiah, which means the anointed. Different ways to think about what is happening to Jesus. It's also a way that people during that time would care for the dead. Jesus didn't spurn the lavish gift of this woman. He didn't even question her intentions. He simply accepted it as spontaneous and uncalculating, selfless and timely, a way to honor his body before his impending death. Now, we live on the other side of the cross and empty tomb. More than those arguing disciples, more than this generous woman, we understand the claims Jesus was making. We understand why he didn't shy away from his obedience, even when it would mean his assassination. So are we willing Are we willing to accept the extravagant gift of the one who traded in his life for ours, 
so that we might receive forgiveness and experience peace with God? Are we willing to welcome a gift so expensive, so costly, so undeniably lavish? And are we willing to respond wholeheartedly? Are we willing to offer our hearts to Jesus in return in ways that defy common sense? And I'm not thinking about what goes into the offering plate but the way that we live our very lives. Are we willing to offer ourselves to Christ as what the Apostle Paul describes as living sacrifices? Are we willing to let our entire lives be a song of worship to our Savior? It really is amazing when you see what can happen in the world when people are both willing to offer and to receive lavish gifts. Some of you may recall having watched the 1987 Danish film Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast. Listen to the summary. Maybe you can recognize part of yourself in this story. The elderly and pious Protestant sisters, Martine and Philippa, live in a small village in 19th century Denmark. Their father was a pastor who founded his own pietistic church. With their father now dead, the austere sect drawing no new converts, and the austere sect drawing no new converts, the aging sisters preside over a dwindling congregation of white-haired believers. That's in the present. The story flashes back 49 years earlier, showing the sisters in their youth. The beautiful girls have many suitors, but their father rejects them all and derides marriage. Each daughter is courted by an impassioned suitor, Martine by a charming young Swedish cavalry officer, and Philippa by a star baritone from the Parisian opera. But both sisters decide to stay put with their father and spurn life away from home. Back to the present, 35 years later, Babette appears at their door. She carries only a letter explaining that she's a refugee from counter-revolutionary bloodshed in Paris and a letter recommending her as a housekeeper. The sisters can't afford to take her in, but she offers to work for free. And so she serves them as their cook for the next 14 years, producing an improved version of their bland meals, typical of their austere congregation, and slowly gaining their respect. Her only link to her former life is a lottery ticket that a friend in Paris renews for her each year. Well, one day she wins that lottery. 10,000 francs, which was a lot of money in those days. But instead of using the money to return to Paris and her lost lifestyle, she decides to spend it preparing a delicious dinner for the sisters and their small congregation. The sisters accept both Babette's meal and her offer to pay for the creation of a a real French dinner. Babette arranges for her nephew to go to Paris and to gather the supplies for the feast. The ingredients are plentiful, sumptuous, and exotic. 
and their arrival causes much discussion among the villagers. As these never-before-seen ingredients arrive and preparations commence, the sisters begin to worry that the meal will become a sin of sensual luxury. In a hasty conference, the sisters and the congregation agree to eat the meal, but to forgo speaking of any pleasure in it and to make no mention of the food during the dinner. Martine's former suitor, now a famous general, married to a member of the Queen's court, comes as a guest of his aunt, the local lady of the manor and member of the old pastor's congregation. He's unaware of the other guest's austere plans, and as a man of the world and former attaché in Paris, he's the only person qualified to really comment on the meal. And so... He talks about it. He captivates, regals the guests with abundant information about the extraordinary food and drink, comparing it to a meal he enjoyed years earlier at the famous Café Anglaise in Paris. Although the other celebrants refuse to comment on the earthly pleasures, Babette's gifts slowly break down their distrust and superstitions. Babette's gifts slowly elevate them physically and spiritually. Through the course of the meal, old wrongs are forgotten, ancient loves are rekindled, and a mystical redemption of the human spirit settles over the table. At the end of the story... The sisters assume that Babette will return to Paris. Only do they discover later that she spent her entire winnings on the meal. If you've been paying any attention to the news lately, you've been hearing stories about incredible sacrifices of our health care workers, people who are intentionally self-isolating from their own families and exposing themselves to incredible risk each day. You have also likely heard of stories, maybe um, told by friends over the phone, of people accepting the kindnesses of their neighbors, offers to run errands or buy groceries or help out in other ways. The question that I think the story of Jesus and this unnamed woman asks us is, will we be too proud to accept the generosity of others? Will we be too tight-fisted to lavish others with extravagant, extravagant attention and care? Well, I certainly hope not. For, as we know in the church, it is in giving and receiving that we experience the abundant life that God has for us. It is in giving and receiving that we experience the abundant life God has for us. Thanks be to God. Amen.